You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, your podcast for in-depth discussions of national security law and the history that gives you the context you need for real understanding. National Security Law Today is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, the editor of National Security Law Today and a member of the committee staff. I'm joined by two national security lawyers here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. And these lawyers write NSLT. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm Harvey Wischikoff. I'm the chair of the advisory committee for the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And I think that this podcast has helped create a very interesting space for what we call law nerds and um, to hang out. And we've created a safe space, but I'm particularly very excited that we have Luke with us today. And that's one of the reasons why I showed up. That's great. All right. Well, let, let me let me refine that a little bit. This is uh, for national security law nerds out there. This is a safe place to come and hang out. Kind of like your chess club, your debate team, or that wall in the gymnasium of your high school where you had your back during all those dances. Um, we're glad, even if you sometimes get rejected, when you try to discuss the nuances of the National Security Act of 1947 as amended on a first date. We feel your pain, but hey, in your world, in our world, you're a rock star. So we are very fortunate today to have Luke Domboski, who is now a partner at the law firm of Debois and Clempton. But uh, importantly, Luke is also the former Deputy Assistant Attorney General of the National Security Division of the Department of Justice, where he oversaw some of the most important cyber investigations of this decade, including the Game Over Zeus botnet and its takedown, um, Luke also worked on the Sony Pictures and Target hacks. Um, those things cost companies millions of dollars, had massive uh, reputational implications, national security implications, and no one inside the Beltway can forget the hack of the Office of Personnel Management, which Luke was also heavily involved in. Um, and so he's also done some international negotiations on cyber-related issues. Um, and we'll put some of this in the notes to our podcast, as well as a lovely photo of Luke and his bio. Luke, it's awesome to have you. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Elise. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, private companies, many of which you now represent, they actually have a critical role in protecting the national security. Um, and their cybersecurity is obviously critically important as a result. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about the relationship between the private sector and the national security when it comes to the cyber landscape? If there's, I make it sound sort of flat and navigable. Yeah, it's almost unlike any other area in that you've got such a huge percentage of critical infrastructure, especially online infrastructure controlled by the private sector. And so the government sort of used to live in the dib space, the defense industrial space, and then be able to control these things. And now a lot of what affects our national security is online and more than 85% of it is out there outside of government control. And so it's caused the government to sort of put on its, almost its PR hat, if you will, and go, <laughs> go forth and ask for partnership and cooperation. Of course, there's always the specter of legislation, regulation to force people's hands, and we've seen some of that, but a lot of the effort has been one of trying to build cooperation and collaboration in the space. Yeah. 
Yeah, we heard a, <clears throat> we heard a bit about some proposed legislation today in the wake of the uh, recent Russia report, which we'll also uh, post here. And in addition to the government going out and seeking these partnerships, now that there are a lot of large companies that have that role or serve national security interests for the United States, they become really attractive targets for malicious cyber actors. Could you characterize that risk for us? <clears throat> well, that's a great question. It's interesting because my career in the space sort of evolved as the threat evolved over the years. When I started in 2002 as a computer hacking and intellectual property or chip attorney, <laughs> And you have to give credit to the government for occasionally being an early entrant or first at something. And something like 20 to 25 years ago, the chip network was formed by the criminal division of DOJ. So you have to give them credit. But back then, when I started in 2002, I was in the second wave or so of the chips. It really was uh, heavily the criminal actors that were in the space, and even they were maturing. It was low-level defacement of the Pentagon's website. It was, you know, punks in their parents' basement. In, the, in Eastern Europe, things had already formed up into a market space. And so you had the early online forums, even in the 1990s, in uh, Russia and other parts of the former Soviet Union. Later on, the West kind of matured and joined the marketplace. And now it's a global marketplace. It includes Africa, Asia, and other parts of the world. The national security threat uh, has also migrated over the years. National security actors have always been good at the human aspects, the human aspects, and I hope what we'll talk, to, talk about in a little bit is how they've combined cyber and human, or human intelligence operations, because um, we've certainly seen that on the client side. So what I experienced was leaving the uh, computer crime and intellectual property section in the criminal division being recruited to go to the national security side to take the first formal national asset protection portfolio and thinking, well, at least I'm done with the Friday night breach <laughs> call. No more Target, no more Home Depot, no more, you know, P.F. Chang or whatever it was. I could at least, <laughs> yeah. I could at least read spy stuff and mm. you know sit in my classified areas, sit in my skiff, and not have to deal with that and have occasional holidays free. And it turned out that one of the first calls was from Sony's president Nicole Seligman, and so the National Asset Protection Program started off with a swift kick in the national assets, and um, I like that. <laughs> it occurred, of course on a Thanksgiving weekend and ensued for several months thereafter. And so what used to be really a threat to the defense sector, to the Lockheeds and Boeings of the world, went on to a movie house, Sony, has migrated to things like the insurance sector and, and to others, and if you believe their recent news reports, to Marriott. So the menu of targets on the national security space has broadened. And so what that means, as a long way to answer your question, Nicole, is, is that our clients in what were pretty mild-mannered sectors are now having to think about national security cyber threats as never before. All right. And um, so right now the big market is really China. It's, it's a huge market, and um, many of the... Global companies see themselves as 
sort of global actors, less specific to the United States. Um, but some of the Chinese laws are especially challenging, and there is at least one legal requirement for gaining market entry into China that's been discussed quite a bit of late, and that is something known as the tech transfer. Um, so what is it, if you could educate our listeners, what exactly does that mean? Um, and how does the transfer of proprietary technology sort of alter the national security um, of the United States or place it in any kind of jeopardy? Sure. Well, I should start with the caveat that I'm not an expert on Chinese law, but I think I understand the contours well enough to be responsive to the question. So China has been part of a broader movement in some areas, like data localization, for example, um, that we've seen in Europe and other parts of the world. And that is certainly there, waiting for the newest Chinese regulations to emerge to sort of put some meat on those bones in terms of data transfer or localization issues. The tech transfer issue predates that somewhat, in that um, China has, in general, as to cutting-edge technology, in particular software and things that would otherwise be outside their view, that could, in their view, affect their national security or national interest, require the, you know, the government to receive a copy of that. So source code, for example, for software. And the calculus, if you listen to you know, my friend Adam Siegel, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations in the past, has been, well, okay, we're a Western company, we're going to make that deal because we're going to out-innovate. We're going to innovate more quickly. We're going to be on version two when we've just given them version one, and by the time they can digest it and market it, we're going to be on to the next version. But if you listen to him and others, that is now no longer the case. It's changing. The risks are there, and China has built the platform to be able to capitalize on those um, innovations more quickly than the next iteration of the code or whatever it is can be produced. So it's a significant issue. I think China uh, is figuring it out like a lot of the rest of the world. To me, if you take a step back and you say, what is it that's made the U.S. special as a place for innovation? Yes, we have had talented people We've had diverse talent from around the world come to our country to take advantage of our education system. We've benefited from those innovations. I think underlying all of it is the rule of law, is a level playing field. When I went with uh, President Obama and others to Stanford, we talked about these issues with people in the community. One of the recurring themes was, hey, look, are you asking us to join Team America? Are you asking us you know, we have Chinese employees and US, uh, Russian employees and employees all over the world. And the answer for me on the margins of the conference was no, we are not asking you. You should have Chinese employees. You should have Russian employees. But what separates our country from many others in the world is that Bill Gates can come out of his parents' basement or garage, Steve Jobs, and it's not taken from them. They can innovate. It's protected by the rule of law. So when I'm asked that question by a 27-year-old in Silicon Valley who has a Tesla Signature S parked outside in the parking lot as to why, you know, why we're, we've had this enrichment of our lives and our livelihoods, there's a little bit of a history lesson that goes with that, and it's a global lesson. So China, I hope, 
will choose the path of a rule of law, even-handed competition. China is fully capable of competing, has the talent, resources to do it fairly. And you know, we need to think on our side, what can we do to better level it as well? It really needs to be mutual. Thanks, Luke. Um, so it's funny, uh, I was president at the creation with the Scott Charneys of the world uh, who started doing cyber criminal stuff. But one of the issues, and I think we'd all be curious to hear your reaction, so we indicted the five Chinese spies out of Pittsburgh with the Hinton indictment in 2014. And you were there as we were moving through the last three couple of years. What is your sense of what the appropriate way is to respond? Is Should we be having more indictments? Do you think we should be ha- using other economic tools to get the Chinese back in their box? What is your policy recommendation if you could move forward and give advice to individuals today? Sure. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't part of that case and didn't work on it, but I think it was um, a powerful message, you know, to, to call people out. And it's not just with China, it's been with Russia, Iran, mm-hmm. and others that the department has used these kind of tools. Um, is a way of saying, you know, look, we can embarrass you um, more broadly if you allow this conduct to go on under your watch. And so I think um, we had a very positive thread going in the fall of 2015. There were eight of us or so uh, in a room overnight with the Chinese to work on uh, what became the Xi-Obama Accord. And it was a very constructive, positive discussion. The stars were aligned, if you will, because people's motivations were very constructive. I think it'd be, it would be a tremendous step if the governments approached it from that way. We're just not going to arrest or indict our way out of this on either side. And so I think it is to open the dialogue, find the common ground, and begin to really focus on a level playing field. So theft of IP perverts the market, dissuades innovation, dissuades investment, really don't think it helps anyone in the long term. China, as it's moved from a predominantly manufacturing uh, economy to being a little expensive to continue in that way, but very rich in talent and now innovation in its own right, leading companies, impressive uh, business, is going to care more, I think, about intellectual property protection as a policy matter itself. Mm. And uh, would you would you also say that if prosecution doesn't work because it's already gone, the intellectual property is left the building, um, and you can't really sort of reclaim that or. Well, you can certainly sanction the recipients of it, and that was part of the executive order that some of us worked on. Mm. Um, but it has to be applied evenly, it has to be you know, used across the board. But all of that is in the department of you know, a negative reaction that no one wants to really do. Um, it hurts everyone when we're involved in a tit for tat over you know, who's violating whose rights and so forth. I think it's better if we all think about a way to find common ground on these issues and move forward. There are, there's just too much of a volume of hacking activity. There are too many trade secrets. You can have one case be a poster child for something. Mm-hmm. 
but it's never going to deal with the broader issue the way uh, a broader policy and trade plan and uh, set of policies must do. That's a really good point. Um, but I wonder, this sort of begs the question though, would it be fair to say that the Chinese have, at least heretofore, they've really targeted um, defense-related industries, the clear defense contractors and the like? And um, if so, uh, how does a private attorney, uh, you know, in, in private practice sort of navigate that concern with clients? Well, I think, you know, look, it's also not just China, it's other countries as well, but um, there's been a healthy debate and discussion the past few years about personal data. So, you know, some of this started with the Snowden revelations, um, and no matter what your take is on all of that, there was a healthy public discussion about people's personal data and information and all of that and what government's role should be versus people's privacy. And we see, you know, huge things like GDPR emerge from that. And the whole world is obsessed with personal data. Uh, a good part of that is clients are thinking about personal data. But I think they cannot lose sight of intellectual property as uh, something that is also high on the menu, higher on the menu and for many other governments than personal data. I think both are subject to being targeted but um, intellectual property is something that if you're, say, a large pharmaceutical company, you can spend three to five years on trials and invest hundreds of millions of dollars and lose it in 10 minutes. And it can be because of your network defenses or it can be because someone on the inside was recruited and took the secrets or it can be because someone on the inside with best of intentions went and spoke at a conference and bought, brought back a flash drive or shared something that they didn't appreciate fit into a larger collection uh, operation. All of it, to me, you know, comes down to a larger level of situational awareness. That uh, awareness needs to be even more sensitive in the national security space. When I, you know, when I uh, lived and worked in Washington as a prosecutor, I'm walking around with, you know, important information of the governments, I have to have a certain level of awareness. When I was based in the embassy in Moscow for two and a half years, it's even more heightened. When I'm living, walking around, meeting with people every day for two and a half years, you know, and I'm in another country, and it's a high threat space. So your situational awareness is a 365 degree, you know, who are my people and how am I vetting them? What are my information assets? How are my lay, uh, am I layering protections around them? What does my vendor and supplier environment look like? Who's connecting with us? What's that acquisition we just made and how are we integrating that into our systems? That's a big area for my team now is very active in the M&A space in trying to assess these risks before it's too late, ahead of time, even pre-signing in a merger or acquisition. The national security difference is that, to come back to what I said in the beginning, governments have been really good on the human side. And so now they've combined that with the latest technical tools to steal information, and it's a powerful combination. So situational awareness has to go on steroids 
when you're talking about national security cyber-related threats. Well, now, it, do you find it challenging sometimes? Um, I do wonder if there is an awareness at the C-suite level, if there's a level of understanding that needs to be enhanced sort of across the board, if it's not, particularly if it's not a tech company run by technologically uh, informed people. Um, and it, I feel like that's kind of a role where you would come in as the private counsel. I think it's different sector to sector, and it's different from the U.S. to Europe and other parts of the world. So take the financial sector, where a lot of my clients are, they're pretty battle-hardened. They may not be the defense industrial base level of, of you know, being targeted, but they're heavily targeted you know, by criminal and now national security threat actors. So, you know, the leading financial institutions are very savvy, and this is a big priority for them. The question for them is, now we've prioritized it, we've thrown a lot of money at it, are we doing the right things? And do those things have a cohesive, you know, a strategy to them, or is it a disparate, are we throwing more ingredients into a soup that starts to get worse and worse as we throw more in? So they have the prioritization in that sector but they are still figuring out what the solutions are. Other sectors have not, you know, been tested as much overtly. Um, when you move to Europe, they're more mature on privacy issues, in my experience. They've been talking about privacy as a right and not just a commodity for longer than we have, and we're learning that lesson and trying to catch up. But I have to say that, uh, with some exceptions, the conversations that I'm having with companies and executives in Europe are five or more years ago conversations that we were having in the U.S. They're still, for example, trying to figure out how this goes beyond information security and IT. They're trying to figure out what a lawyer's role is. They're thinking about their first tabletop where some of our clients in the U.S. are on their seventh or eighth tabletop. They're beginning to think about insurance as a, a, a tool in this area. They um, are maturing on the cyber side, where the U.S. is maturing on the privacy side, and I think we have to we have a lot to learn from each other. Which I, I imagine that um, assisting them develop meaningful compliance programs in this space is of critical importance to somebody practicing in this area? Well, that's a great question. And to stick with the European example, GDPR is the first sort of Europe-wide regulation requiring actual adequate measures of, of a cyber, uh, not just privacy, how you handle data and data governance and classification, but is also about your uh, cybersecurity protections and controls. It's very cryptic about that. Right. It says it has to be it's adequate. GDPR. So, you know, but it's it's a hook. And so it's force people, along with breach notification obligations in Article 33, to think about, okay, maybe it's better if we don't just make notifications, if we actually protect the stuff in the first place, and maybe we'll be found not to have adequate measures and fined. So compliance with that has been a conversation piece that has allowed teams like mine and Harvey's to come into the space and help people with more than just compliance, but actually protecting the stuff. 
Because compliance, as you well know, of course, makes you compliant, but doesn't necessarily protect your information assets. One of the interesting questions is the American Bar Association, the National Task Force on Cyber and the Law, uh, we created at the request of then uh, Suzanne Spaulding at DHS, a uh, merger and acquisition cyber audit book. And you mentioned that, that to raise the game, we used to always have a financial audit, but it sounds like you guys are also involved now in doing cyber audits inside the M&A space. And what does that look like, and how important is it, and what have been some of your experiences in making a recommendation for an acquisition that may be complicated by the cyber network of the parent company doing the acquiring? Sure. Well, you have several goals that you're going in with when you do it. One is, will the asset that we're buying, if it's heavily tech or information dependent or IP or it's customer data, a huge swath of customer data we're buying, if we go in and find out the environment is riddled with holes, that other people have been eating off the menu and the IP is not really only ours but is out there in the market and others are have their hands on it, then we've spent all this money, we've done all this you know, to acquire, make the acquisition, and we really have uh, you know, devalued our investment or acquisition or body devalued one. The other piece is now are we buying liability? That's another dimension because you buy them and then you know you may be the one holding the bag on notifications and fines and all of that. The you know the other piece is if you're going to be able to integrate them into your own systems, both personnel and uh, uh, network connectivity, are we creating more risk for the mothership? You know, are we opening ourselves up to attack by creating new surface area that wasn't as well protected as our own? So those are the goals. And when we come at it to your, to your question, Harvey, it's a combination of legal and technical and business lenses looking at the problem. So what is the sector? What's the maturity level of the target? What kind of assets are they holding? Where are they located in the world? What's their regulatory environment? And so, like any due diligence, in part it's a question of your leverage. If they really want to sell and you're an attractive buyer, they're going to share more with you about things. Conversely, um, they may be in a, a less mature state that you find them in but you have more visibility into what the risks are and you can make a more informed choice. The more power and leverage and choices they have as a seller, the less visibility you're likely to get because they can play you off against other buyers um, where they can choose not to sell at all. So you're taking a little more of a risk, but you're hoping that conversely, they have more maturity and a, a bigger track record of dealing with these kinds of issues. So just to give a little tour of the things that we do, you know, we'll retain a technical vendor. We will uh, shape that investigation. Um, to me, this goes not just to uh, acquisitions, but even incident response is the lawyers that are sort of the new lawyers on the block in this space 
and I, I like to think of myself and some of my colleagues as some of them, and Harvey's definitely in this league, they are, not, are not only privacy lawyers receiving the answers from the technical team like a law school exam and, and making notifications, but they are shaping the investigation. So they are taking the forensic firepower and crafting it and shaping it to create the possibility of more legal options and better outcomes and reduce risk. So that's true in incident response. It's true in M&A due diligence. So we actively do that, and we produce a report through outside counsel. So we set it up as a privileged thing for the most part. This, you know, of course, is a bigger issue in the U.S. than other parts of the world where you may not have privilege at all. Um, but we're careful about the way things are written up. We make sure that the decision points go unvarnished to the decision makers, but we don't, you know, posterize them with too much drama, mm -hmm. unnecessary drama and hyperbole in the reports. But they come through counsel, but they have technical, legal, and practical business issues identified in there. So are you concerned if, let's say you do an NDA and privilege, it turns out the M&A does not go through. The target now has been, I imagine, informed of this. Is there any potential liability for the target if the target doesn't, doesn't take steps to remediate what the potential exposure is? Have you and, and let's clarify for listeners who may not know this, that an NDA is a non-disclosure agreement. Um, and when we say M&A, we've referred to that throughout. It, we're referring to a process known as mergers and acquisitions sort of broadly. It's just kind of odd because my parents had me sign NDAs in the crib, so I just am so familiar with that. So that's how, a great question. How yeah. do you deal with that? Yeah. yeah, so, you know, there are many junctures in the course of a potential merger or an actual merger, but the, the big markers are the signing and what happens pre-signing, what happens then between the time we sign that we're going to have a sale, just like you're buying a home, you'll sign the papers to make the purchase, agree on terms. There's a sort of period in between where people line up their financing and line up the other things that need to happen for a closing. And then once the closing happens, you own it. Pre-signing, we have found that increasingly the sellers don't want to know anything about what you found on the cyber front. They're, you know, if you imagine the, the three-year-old sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, la, 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 you know, don't, I don't want to hear what you're saying, mom or dad. That. <laughs> I still do that at meetings. Harvey <laughs> does too. Sounds like my students, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's kind of how it is for some of the sellers, is that once, to Harvey's point, which is an excellent one, once they're tagged with knowledge, they can be charged with not dealing with it or making a subsequent misrepresentation if they say everything's kosher to the next would-be buyer and they knew that it wasn't. They didn't look under those rocks that they were told to look under. So they frequently put their fingers in their ears pre-signing and say, we don't want to know what you're finding. Just tell us, do you want to buy it or not? Now, if they're desperate and you say, we're just walking away, they may say, okay, tell us some stuff. All right, we may change, maybe we'll change something. Then between signing and closing, there's this weird period where you're in the twilight zone where you are able to talk. There the issue is a legal principle of jumping the gun, which regulators don't. I'm familiar don't. with that. <laughs> is that Latin? It's as if, you know, I, I went to buy your house, but we haven't closed yet. We signed. 
And now I want to like go in there and run around and change the paint, the walls mm -hmm. and do things without really owning it yet. And the sale could still fall through. So regulators don't want that. They want the buyer to wait until they're closing. Then there are other concepts about, you know, preserving assets that are an exception to the jumping of the mm -hmm. gun. Anyway, too much information, but a great question. That's great. So all of this is the province of cyber security and privacy lawyers nowadays. Who, who would have thought that? So, and all of this is interesting. The, the cyber threat landscape uh, is obviously changing. Um, and, and I don't want to overstate um, the importance. Of, there's still a lot of uh, what gets lost and what is characterized as breaches is just people clicking on malicious links and emails they never should have done. It's a lot of it's, it's personnel control. And that's really, is that beyond sort of the scope of the private attorney advising the company or does that fit into the compliance, educate your staff? Oh. Mm. Great question, very much so. And to bring it back to national security, national security threat actors will use the least expensive tool, if you will, in the toolkit to get in. And so if they can use an ordinary phishing email with no malware at all, it's just say a fake prompt, Outlook prompt uh, that you think is coming from your machine asking you to enter credentials and it's actually a machine they control that's you know prompting you to enter your username and password then they're going to do that they're not going to use their special sauce on you whatsoever once they're in if you're a critical infrastructure or high value target then they they're much stealthier at remaining persistent so that the techniques will become the latest techniques once they're in but they want it to be a very uh, pedestrian, criminal-looking way in the door if possible. So whether for criminal threats or national security threats, we do a lot of advising on these basic things. So one thing that's very um, sort of every day now that's happening in droves are diversion of wire transfers. Mm. And they happen just through a compromised email box. So I'm the attacker. I'm operating in West Africa or somewhere in the Balkans. I go on LinkedIn and I find that you're the controller, or you're the person with fund transfer authority. I'm gonna look at your social media and figure out how I can craft the perfect phishing email for you. You're gonna go for it, chances are, possibly. I hope you won't. <laughs> so once they're in, they watch what goes on. They'll look for examples of outbound wire instructions so they know what bank, how you format it, and who you copied on the emails. They'll then create dummy-looking one-letter-off one accounts for those cc people to make it look to everyone like they were copied on the fake wire request. Or they'll find a copy of an invoice that is from somebody that is going to pay you a lot of money for hard work you've done. They'll take that and they'll doctor the destination bank. So, you know, this is an example of wire diversion. We're seeing in the national security space some governments use criminal techniques to raise funds. So, North Korea, Lazarus Group, they are doing more than just attacks on Sony with an ideological motive, they're actually raising funds for the regime by carrying out fraud and extortion attacks on Western companies. So look, let me follow up with that because it's a fascinating example. Uh, what has been your experience, I'm curious because I've had different uh, responses to this, as to when that 
wire transfer takes place in which it appears to be a legitimate request through their own networks, are the cyber insurance companies paying the loss or are they arguing that since this appears to have been a legitimate transfer through your system, we are not? What has been your experience how cyber insurance takes place? May I add to that too, which is and how easy is it to get the client to go to the FBI, contact the NK, <laughs> get a rapid response, and do the things that so, you, know, yeah. you know from your experience what can is your actually be done. Yes. So yeah, both. so the clients, when they see a multi-million dollar wire go out, they're ready to call anybody. <laughs> They'll call anybody you want. Um, and so we have no trouble getting them to call the FBI. In fact, if this happens to you, you have about 72 hours to have a reasonable shot at stopping that wire. And there's a, a financial fraud kill chain program that most of the banks in the West and around the world subscribe to. FinCEN uh, plays a big role in that. The FBI can activate the kill chain, as can the banks. So act quickly, don't hesitate, and pay attention to it. But to your question on insurance, uh, often no, because, because if your system is compromised and that's used to cause me to send the wire, I don't have a compromise of my network. Um, I don't have any, I was just fooled you sent me an email, it really wasn't a compromise of my system, I just received what I thought were the right instructions and they were the wrong instructions with malicious intent. And so we're seeing often that denied. So it, it varies policy to policy. It may not be your cyber insurance, it may be your fraud crime policy. Mm -hmm. So you look elsewhere, but it is, it is a huge and evolving okay. area. And we are seeing people that used to care about your credit card no longer care. Because why would they care about that when they can have an $8 million wire go out to them in West Africa or the Balkans or Hong Kong or wherever? That's a pretty good payday for anyone. You don't need to mess with credit cards. All right. Well, what do you think, um, looking forward now, um, how do you think the cyber threat landscape will change in the future, and how will that change in that topography then influence the practice of law for attorneys like yourself? Great question. You know, I think that the uh, the technology is obviously the, the easiest to talk about. It's a fascinating space. Um, I'm not a computer scientist, but it fascinates me as somebody that's around these issues. You know, developments with AI are mm. a huge issue. We're seeing AI-fueled uh, efforts to improve attacks. At least we're reading about them and hearing about them, even if we don't know that they've hit us. Um, but we're also, at the same time, hearing from the security research community about AI as a tool to enhance defenses, almost like white blood cells adapting and attacking an attacker. So uh, that arms race, I think, is going to be there. There's a big issue about cloud, of course. Um, cloud has fascinating possibilities because you can, you, know, you can hire a place to put your data where someone else majors in the protection of it. You still have to maintain the keys. Um, you can, you can have an armored vehicle, but if you leave your keys on your porch, someone can still get in and drive your vehicle away. So 
controls and key management and things are big. Blockchain has interesting possibilities, Bitcoin and blockchain, and a number of the banks are, are looking at ways and others to get the benefits of the decentralized, transparent, and accountable aspects of blockchain um, on a more macro scale than we've seen it in the past. And you're referring to the, in addition to the currency applications, a non-currency. Correct, mm -hmm. uh, correct. Supply broader ledger, broader distributed, ledger. Distributed ledger. Yeah. Correct, broader ledger uh, applications that we've seen. You know, I think, to me, the more interesting part of this, as I come from the government side, I come from the liberal arts side of this question, mm -hmm. is as a policy matter among nations within our own country and among governments, is what do we want the landscape to look like? Right now, there are some disturbing trends of localization, balkanization, mm -hmm. people taking national interests over free trade and so forth, in a way that goes beyond prudent protection and arguably becomes unhealthy. We'll talk about any specific government, but I think that what has uh, the most potential to be exciting for the future is to reach common ground on these policy and trade issues in a way where innovation thrives cross-border, law enforcement and rule of law protected cross-border. These are the things that are most exciting to me. One of the most fun parts of my job at the computer crime section and, and later as deputy assistant AG was to be one of the people that would go to The Hague, to the European Cybercrime Center, and try to build consensus among countries on global operations like Silk Road or Game Over Zeus. The first few times I went, it would be a handful of countries that had the combination of the, the laws the capacities and the willpower to participate, and a few others that had maybe two or one of those components and wished they had the others. And then the next time we came, a few of those would join the party, and it expanded and expanded until we were doing operations like Dark Code and others after me that were over 20 countries involved. So that kind of buy-in and consensus on what's best for everyone whether it's protection of children, protection of IP, deterring terrorism, these are the, these are the rule of law that allows a free and open platform that will benefit everyone. So I would say, as you know, the United Nations uh, general group of experts, UNGGE, mm -hmm. they sort of hit an impasse uh, because of the lack of agreement over how we understand sovereignty, how we understand freedom of movement on the Internet, the Chinese have a perspective, the Russians have a perspective, we have a perspective, the Europeans have a perspective, and it's been hard to create a global consensus on those hard, big issues of sovereignty. Yeah, I've gone to the GGE yeah. as part of the U.S. Uh, mm -hmm. delegation, and um, the here's a little bit of irony, which is that for years, many, many years, the U.S. and Western countries lobbied for the term cybersecurity, the Russians and the Chinese lobbied for the term information security because the latter were worried about, you know, Twitter and flash mobs and the Arab Spring, frankly, scared them, I believe. And uh, they were worried about information as a threat to their sovereignty. And, uh, you well, know, I think we understand that now. <laughs> I think, you know, it turns out that Jeffersonian democracies are a little more susceptible. Uh, 
and uh, the, the fear, I think, that the Russians had about their 2013 election, you know, you can, you can sort of read the tea leaves from there. So this is an example of an area where right. I think everyone is having to rethink things. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. Well, Luke Domboski is a partner at Debo Waz and Plimpton LLC and the former Deputy Assistant Attorney General of the Justice Department over national security cyber matters. Luke's bio and photo can be found in the notes to this podcast. And Luke, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. We hope that you'll come back in the future and uh, join us once again. So Luke, I want to know, Debo Boys is very lucky to have you. Uh, I'm particularly happy that you're keeping Mark Goodman on the straight and narrow at Debo Boys. That's a tall task, and I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you, Harvey. And Elisa and Nicole, thank you as well for having me. It's a, it's a real honor to be on the show, and I'm a fan and hope you'll have me back sometime in future. Absolutely. So for our listeners tonight, you can find links to the Black Letter Law, articles on today's topic also at AmericanBard.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. Our website is AmericanBard.org slash NatSecurity. You can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBard.org. Follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or find us on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week for National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security for the American Bar Association. The views expressed on National Security Law Today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.